Or if you're visiting, there are sermon notes in the bulletin. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17 is a passage that we started studying last week. I'm hoping to wrap it up this morning. It is a passage that very simply has the, the theme of have no divisions in the church. That God doesn't want a local church to be divided. He doesn't want it to be uh, a church that has schisms in it. And you look at verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. No divisions. And this is a passage that is giving us a key theological truth, a key theological truth that will carry us through the rest of chapter 1, I'm talking when we get to verse 18, and then we go into chapter 2 and chapter 3. It is a key theological truth that I know is easily missed, and yet here it is in Scripture. I cannot wait until I teach verses 18 and 19. i got to tell you that. Because it, when you get to those two verses, those are just so deep theologically. And it all fits with what we have here as we begin to lay the foundation of having no divisions in the church, we can all understand that. We can all grasp that. You divide anything. You divide a family. You divide a country. It becomes weaker, right? If a country is divided, if, if during the Civil War the United States would have been attacked by numerous nations, not only were we fighting one another, we would have had to fight them. It wouldn't have been very good for us. So we understand Division weakens us. Division weakens a church. God wants a united church. And so, as we stated last week, God doesn't want you to line yourself behind certain favorite teachers or certain favorite you know, popular speakers. And here's the slideshow. If someone can get that. It's going to be the exact same slideshow, but it's going to be brief. Okay? I want you to understand that this is just today to summarize because I'm really trying to get to the parts we didn't get to last week. So I want to drive this home. This is all about church division versus church unity. Looking at the underlying problem. God is clear about unity. Unity is necessary for the church. And you have a responsibility. Everybody has a responsibility to make sure that they're, they are functioning for the unity. God doesn't want us to go through door one or door two, meaning sure don't want you to line up behind one person or another in a church, okay? We are not to be divided. However, as we studied, and I'd highly encourage you, if you weren't here, go back and listen to last week's podcast, get the CD from Brian. God is not talking about church sex. We looked at this with great detail. In Galatians chapter 1, if somebody is preaching another gospel, that they are to be accursed. That was very serious business. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about the fact that there are divisions within the church, or we should say sex within the church, because that way you can know who's approved and who's not. So somebody comes to me this week, and they, which they did, and they said, oh, you know, I know so-and-so, and they go to this church. And immediately I know that that church teaches baptism is necessary for salvation. That is a red flag. So we have to understand, church sects are not the problem. So we don't want people to come up and say, oh no, we have to be united with the church down the street, and we need to be united down the this other church. Listen, the church down the street is preaching a different gospel. Um, just facetiously speaking, 
that there are churches that teach other gospels. We are not to be united with them. That's not what we're talking about. We are talking about the local church. Division within the local church is the problem. And division is not what God wants. God wants multiplication. He wants us to be powerful. He wants us to be spreading the gospel. Okay? God does not want a church to be split in numbers or in allegiance. So half the church goes one way, half the goes the other way. We're, you know, I'm all behind Mike, I'm all behind so-and-so, okay? That's not what God wants. And we're going to see as we go through this, doctrine as well as holiness play a part. Doctrine and holiness play a part. It's fascinating as we'll see doctrine being a key part. What we're not talking about is the superficial reasons. These are definitely addressed in Scripture. Oh, I want more chocolate desserts at church dinners. I want this kind of coffee. I don't want the colors painted this color in the church, okay? That is not what this passage is about. Yes, these can be issues. Yes, I do believe there should be more chocolate desserts at our dinner, okay? That, that is, okay? But that is not what this passage is about. The Corinthians were divided over leaders. Paul, Paulo, Cephas, Christ. We'll talk more about them today, okay? The concept of getting behind a leader is something that the world is all about. Get behind the leader, he will solve your problems. Get behind a leader, his message is the one that changes people. And this is uh, a very well-known speaker uh, in, in the Hispanic world uh, on television. And uh, one of 100 influential people's Time Magazine's promoting. Get behind these leaders. These are the ones that make change. So the Corinthian church was just following what the world does, and it caused divisions. You have to understand when God calls them babies, you are not spiritually growing in chapter 3. It's because of this issue. So I'm reemphasizing it. It's like, do you not understand how church growth, how godly growth takes place? You guys are following leaders thinking that's what's doing it. And it shows that you just don't get it. Okay? So we have tied this, though, ultimately to pride. Pride is the underlying cause. Pride is about my glory. Hey, you know, when I got saved, the Apostle Paul was the one I heard. I got saved by Paul, and Paul's the one that baptized me. I'm a special Christian. <laughs> Look at me. That's what's going on, okay? Pride is the underlying cause. And so, which leader, which group? So, you, the different groups, Paul, Cephas, Apollos, I'm just the Christ group. Those were the groups. And we're going to see what is ultimately working behind them. Pride says be behind a certain leader because it makes you look good. Pride goes before destruction, and the church would have been divided. The church would have been um, hurt. So many leaders desire popularity over true leadership. And part of what we're going to see with the Apostle Paul is he wasn't saying, hey, everybody flock to me. But, we you know, today this is something that's very, very popular, very, very much in vogue where we see church people, church leaders, trying to get everyone to be behind them as if they're the ones that bring about growth. So we said the answer to achieve unity and combat pride on this issue is that we understand theology of salvation and sanctification, which causes a true leader to humble himself. And I should have put under the people who are following him to get behind them as well. So hit the lights and let's understand when we talk about this, Paul is not saying this, okay? When we're talking about leaders and speakers and when he talks about, about 
don't you understand? It's not Paul or Apollos. He's not saying, leaders, don't work on your messages. Okay? So if someone says, well, God just wants me to speak blandly, you know, speakers, no. God wants people to put effort into their message. If I got up here and I just start rambling, maybe that's sometimes people think I'm just rambling, go from subject to subject, that would not be good. God is not saying don't work on your message. He's also not saying don't have leaders because God very much puts leaders in the church. Some people might think, well, God is saying you can't have any leaders. No, that's not what he's saying here. And he's also not saying don't divide from false teachers because God very clearly wants us to stay away from false teachers. Uh, all right? So the church was though being divided because they wanted to be perhaps by the cool leader. So we look at verse 10, and from verse 10, from last week, this is the recap. The exhortation is you are to have no divisions. It's already the filled, filled in the blank. The exhortation was, I exhort you. It's one of the strongest statements in all of Scripture. Don't do this. I exhort you. All right? I, I really seriously want you to do this. And what I want us to understand here is the big picture, just as, a, as the recap, is when he says, I don't want you to all be thinking the same. You see at the end of verse 10, be of the same mind and in the same judgment. This is similar, if I didn't mention it last week, this is similar to like even parenting, being on the same page, all right? Because parents will, will not always be perfect robots. And, and part of this exhortation is for us to understand God is not saying that everybody in the church has to be the exact same in the, in the sense that we're all, we're all to be bringing our backgrounds, our experiences. And a great illustration is in parenting. A situation arises and, and you have a father and you have a mother and they, they look at their children and they say, wait a second, here's a situation and we've got to discipline our child. And, and the one says, look, I think the discipline should be really light. And the other one says, well, I think it should be really significant. One says, I think maybe we should take away TV time. The other one says, you know, no, we're going to let them have TV. And, and, and part of it is, is the parents have the principles and their thoughts, and they need to come together to work things out to be on a unified page. And anyone that knows, it's just, it, 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 it has to be at the base nature of parents, of, of children, that children know when you have a softy dad and a hard mom, or a hard mom and a soft dad, and they know how to divide us, right? And, 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 and so it didn't take long for our children to learn that I'm more the softy, right? <laughs> okay. And so Becky says no. Well, dad will say yes. Well, how important it was for me and Becky to be working together and talking things through and thinking, okay, we got to be on the same page. And so I think a little bit of that is what is being addressed here. God wants us to be people who are on the same page, thinking alike. So when you hear, listen to these passages. You can jot these down and look at these on your own for sake of time. Just let me read them. Romans 12, 16 says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Romans 15, 15, now may God... May the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.2, 2, make it my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Well, the reason I think deference and 
and grace needs to be given is because sometimes we aren't on the same page. And sometimes you think, well, how in the world could you think that? Or why would you say that? It's because the reality of it is, is we need to dialogue. We need to talk and we need to get on the same page so that we're all working together. So God recognizes how important this is for a church. Be thinking alike, and especially on this area of how does church growth and how do people really get changed occur. So fill in the blank, the next blank, the historical situation with the word existed. I wanted you to get at this. You see that divisions existed in the church. And Paul takes us back to the, his day, and he says, for I have been informed, in verse 11, verse 11, for I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And Paul is saying, I know these exist. This really happened. And this is fascinating for us because sometimes people say, I would love to go back to the early church. The early church was good. The early church was pure. No, the early church was already divided. My goodness, the early church, if Paul finds is the developer of this church around 50 to 53 AD, and he's writing this year, this two years later, already this church has got a major problem, a problem that, that needs its correction. Now, some people would say, why is Chloe reporting this? We mentioned last week, we don't know who she is. This is the only time she's in here. But I'm telling you a couple things. Number one, somebody bringing something to the leader's attention is good. This isn't gossip. And I think by Paul putting her in Scripture by name, he's saying, look, this isn't some behind-the-scenes report. Somebody is coming up, and they're putting their name associated. And, you know, it's always tough when you deal with someone with gossip, and they say to you, you know, I've heard. I've heard this about you. I heard that about you. You say, well, who told you? Well, I, I don't want to say. Well, Chloe had the guts to say, put my name with it. And I think that's always a good thing in a church. If you've got a problem, put your name with it and get it addressed. So Chloe did that. So Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And so there are, there's fights going on. And sadly, churches, have, even to this day, have fights. And by God's grace, I've been here 20 years, my 21st year, we've not had a fist fight break out. But some of you have been in churches where fist fights break out within a church in the sense where, you know, it's, it's embarrassing and it's sad. Uh, and so we don't know exactly how these arguments were playing out, but they must have been significant enough for Paul to report them. So you go in and, he, and we get the details and it says this in verse 12. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul and I'm of Paulus, I'm Cephas and I'm of Christ. So let's go behind these four people. Paul. Paul is the, the founding missionary of this church. We learn from him from the book of Acts. We learn that he writes 13 of the 27 New Testament books. Paul is somebody significant. But later on in the, the book of um, I think it's 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to tell a little bit about himself. And he's short. And he doesn't have as much hair as me. He's balding, he says. Okay, so he's not the greatest speaker. He must stumble over his words. And so the Apostle Paul, so the Apostle Paul is somebody that has some deficiencies from the world's perspective. He's the Apostle Paul that is not as handsome and maybe as great a speaker as Apollos. From the book of Corinth, from the book of Acts, we learned that that Apollos was a very mighty man in speech. So you can see already some people might say, wait a second, hey, you know, when Apollos comes in, he's really very, 
he's much a, a great speaker. He, you know, he is somebody that um, we love to listen to. Uh, he's got one of those voices that you just like, you know, he could read a grocery list and we love it. There, you know, and there's people like that. Some of you who follow baseball know that Vin Scully, the great baseball announcer for the Dodgers, retired, and he's got a voice. You just you listen to him, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what he does. People are enthralled. And I, and if you haven't heard this, just to prove it, this is I think about 15, 20 years ago. They said Vin Scully, you could read a grocery list, and people would listen to it. And so they gave him a grocery list. And he recites it, and it's become one of the most well-known things he's ever done as he reads this grocery list, and people are just enthralled by it, okay? So we're thinking maybe Apollos had one of those kind of voices, one of those types of voices that people just, wow, I love to listen to it. You see, the next group is, is Cephas, and that is the Aramaic name for Peter. And we don't know if Peter was in the church or not. We don't have any record of him coming there. But because we told you in the study of the city of Corinth that it was a well-traveled area, we're thinking that a lot of people that had been impacted by Cephas, a lot of people who got saved by Peter, had come through there. And so they're saying, wow, we're hanging, we're people who actually got saved through the teaching of Peter, one of the original 12 apostles, disciples, and we hold some pretty significant um, place, and we really like the things that he has said. And that's not that he would have ever said anything contrary to Paul, but we like to emphasize the thing that Pe- things that Peter emphasized. And then you see the last one says, well, I'm of Christ, I of Christ. Who, who would that be? Well, maybe these are people, we don't know the specifics of this, but they could potentially be people who just said, look, we're just going to follow Jesus. We're not going to have any leaders. And I've shared this before. There, there are churches, um, there's a brethren group, a church um, that doesn't have any pastors. We're not going to have any pastors. Uh, we're, just, we're just following Christ. And so th- that is sort of like super spiritual. And only because it's in this context that we know it's not accurate in the sense like we should all say we're of Christ. Of course we're all of Christ. But the idea here is for some reason these people were aligning up, saying they're followers of Christ, and it's askew, and it's wrong. And so you see that historically this is what has happened, and Paul rebukes them. And he says in verse 13, has Christ been divided? And this is like a literal, like has he been divided where he's like been cut up? And it's sort of like grotesque. And Paul is making a graphic illustration to say no, because when we went and we studied this, we saw that the apostle um, Paul was teaching that we're all brought into one body. We're all supposed to represent Jesus Christ. And again, another exhortation to go back and listen to last week's podcast because of the fact that you need to always understand how the church of Christ operates in one body. So we're just understanding verse 13, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And what Paul is trying to say is, look, using himself, I didn't die for you. I'm not the one that brought you into a spiritual body. This is something that you need to grasp and need to understand that if even you start with me, we can't have these divisions. We can't say you're Paul's group. You can't say today, I am John MacArthur's group or Gil Rue's group or Lutzer's group or any other pastor, James McDonald, Chuck Swindoll, 
people that are good pastors, people that you might say, I really like this type of individual. This is what he's saying. He's saying Christ wasn't divided for you in that regard. He wasn't divided for me. So get to the last part, and this is where we want to emphasize it. Here he gives the example, fill in the blank, with the word humbling. You see Paul's example of humbling himself. And he says this in verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, two people in the church, that these are emphasis of his own work. And Paul, instead of saying, listen, you guys are absolutely right. I think, you know, we should be called the Paul's group and everybody should get behind me. And, and you know, this is like sometimes where you struggle because even today people will have ministries and they'll, and I'm not saying that they can't put their name and so-and-so's ministry, blah, blah, blah. But the reality of it is, is if you follow somebody's ministry, remember, they're not the end of all. Because the reality of it is, is you're going to see everything that we ultimately need to be struggling for, is striving for, is the Word of God. And Paul is saying, verse 14, using the illustration of baptism, I didn't baptize any of you so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. And just so that, you know, because I mentioned this last week, you don't want to get off on the whole concept of um, just thinking this is about baptism, which so many churches, pastors teaching on this do, and you get diverted. To me, this is very similar to, like, when I officiate a wedding. When I officiate a wedding, I've seen this happen, because when I've gone to see other weddings, Sometimes pastors will officiate a wedding and think that they have created a special bond and they're doing something special for the couple that nobody else could do. And I think Becky and I were at a wedding one time in Nebraska and we were up in Omaha and this pastor gets up and, you know, we, I just, I just love this couple and I just, you know, went on and on and on about their special role within this couple's relationship. And I'm thinking to myself, this isn't about you today, this is about the couple, all right? And, and it's like, you know, when somebody gets baptized, it's about their profession and they're, they're coming to Christ. And it's not about me. Hey, look at me. I'm the one that's officiating and I'm baptizing them. So that I want you to see Paul is just using this as an illustration, obviously a key one, because baptism is a public profession of faith, right? But it is where Paul is trying to humble himself and defer and say, listen, when we're talking about the church and we're talking about how people are impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ... It's ultimately because God is behind the message, not because I baptize people and I get people to be my followers. So look at verse 16. Now, I did baptize in the household of Stephanus. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone, anyone, any other. And the point in that is, okay, Paul is saying, yeah, I might have baptized somebody, but if baptism was the key element, then I would need to make sure that I baptized everybody. So again, you know, when we look at churches that whether they're baptizing infants or they're, or they're necessarily saying baptism is necessary for salvation, and, and you know, so many of the Church of Christ churches do today, we have to understand that we have to understand that they're missing it. Because Paul here is making it clear that baptism doesn't bring about salvation. Otherwise, he would have done it. So finally, he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. That word void means to be made empty, all right? And, and, and 
I wanted to focus on this in the, our final moments here, okay? In the idea where Paul talks about the fact of cleverness of speech, like a wisdom of speech, putting something together that people are wowed by. Listen, we live in a day and age that I, as a pastor, could go out and buy sermons. I could listen to sermons that are just wow people. And I could come and I could bring them on a Sunday morning and hope and trust that maybe I can draw a bigger crowd or get people to be converted. I know that's always a pressure on pastors. 20 years ago, I've shared this before, when I came into this area, there were three or four pastors that had been publicly rebuked because they had taken messages from other pastors and preached them on a Sunday morning and never let anybody know. And then people had found out and some people in church meetings confronted them. And ah, that wasn't my tendency. Those of you who know how I put my message together, that wasn't something I was going to do. I would, felt the urge to do, but I understand the pressure. And, and since I've been a believer, a uh, pastor here in this area, and since like, the internet has exploded, I mean, you could literally go out and you get these info packages. Pastor, if you want to see your church filled, if you would like to see more people come to the Lord, you send us in $150, we'll send you this sermon series. And, you know, there's a church in our area. They got 5,000 people. They're buying those sermon series, all right? They are buying those sermon series, and they've got 5,000 people. I know it. And, and, and I sit there, and I say, okay, all right, if, why are they doing it? Does it work? I don't know. Maybe they learn, you learn how to grow a crowd. And some of this, some, well, I do know that some of the material that, they, the, that the originating organization sends out, it says it doesn't matter what denomination you are. Well, like, click, click, click. Wait a second. If that denomination picks up that material, or somebody picks up that material who doesn't believe in the same gospel, and they get a crowd, then it's the material. Because we know how in our culture to put on dog and pony shows. All right? And, and, and the Apostle Paul is thankfully addressing this right at the beginning of the church. And he's saying, listen, it's not how Paul puts together a message or Peter puts together a message or Apollos puts together a message because if you don't understand how people are really saved, then you are going to mess up so much of your theology and so much of how the church operates. That's what he's saying. He, he is saying at the end of verse 17, it's not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would be made void or be made empty. It, it, it's not in how the message is put together. Now, I know there are people who go to extreme, and I don't have time to go through all of it, but 200 years ago, one of the greatest preachers in America was called Jonathan Edwards. He's considered um, the father of the uh, great revival in America, and, and he so took this to the extreme that he literally stood before the congregation and um, when he read the, like the sinner in the hands of angry God, this great sermon, it was on July 8th, 1741. So that's longer than 200 years, 300 years. He just literally read it without looking up, read it in a monotone voice, and God blessed. And people were crying and repenting, and supposedly more people came to the Lord in America than ever before. Um, this author wrote, why was Edward so effective? Edward's first and greatest asset was the power of God in his life. Effective communication requires the right message, the right messenger, the right method, and the right recipients at the right time. 
Edwards was a willing and faithful tool in the hand of God, who in his perfect wisdom and power accomplished the results. Also, Edwards slaved to find exactly the right words and construction for his sermons. Even today, his, right, his, wor- his, his word pictures impale the human heart. Well, I would just add just this one thing. You see, if, if God blesses, then it impacts. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. God is the one who's working behind the messages, and he's the one that says, I'm going to convert someone. And this is where I, as a pastor, get incredibly humbled because I can accurately preach the gospel, I can accurately teach it, and unless God is sitting there saying, hey, you listening, open your eyes, give your heart to God, unless that is happening, it's not going to happen. And if the church all of a sudden starts thinking, well, we need Lutzer in this church, or we need MacArthur in this church, we need James McDonald in this church, then you're missing it. Because the idea is what we need is Christ in the church. We need God working in people's hearts to convert them. And, and that's always my begging prayer for you, is that you are regularly praying for our services, you're regularly praying for our evangelists, you're regularly praying that God shows up that God convicts people, that God changes people's hearts. Because it doesn't matter how effective a speaker Apollos was or Paul was or Cephas was, if God doesn't show up, nothing happens. And, and, and here's the thing. As we're going to see, if we trust in that, I think personally, and I truly believe some of those pastors with 5,000 people are going to stand before God and they are going to be judged for it. I think John MacArthur said, you know, so many pastors are hoping to have large churches. He says they'll, they're going to hope that until the day they come before God and stand in judgment, because then they are accountable for every soul. And you buy a prepackaged sermon, you buy, you, you copy Lutzer's sermons, and I'm saying there's nothing wrong with Lutzer. And one of the commentators, I just want to make a side note, is that you know, today, some great pastors like Wesley and, and Calvin and other pastors, if they knew how sometimes people stood behind them and fought just for their ways over others, they'd probably be incredibly embarrassed, okay? And I don't think John MacArthur and others are, and Lutzer are saying, just follow me. But what I'm saying is the idea is when you've got p- pastors that are saying, I know how to draw a crowd, and I'm so thankful I've got a church of three and 5,000 people, and I know that I don't necessarily bring the gospel in. Well, then the reality of what's going to happen is they're going to stand before God. And all those people that were there who never heard the gospel are going to, are going to face judgment. And that pastor is going to be held accountable. And, and, and so at the same time, God knows if I am trusting in methodology. Hey, here's a great intro. This will make them cry in the conclusion this will make them laugh somewhere in the middle. It's not in the cleverness. It's in the presentation that you're a sinner. The only way to pay the penalty for your sin is that Christ died for you. And unless you repent, God will send you to judgment. That message that Christ died for us, the cross of Christ, he died at the cross, is the message that I need to get out. And I pray more than anything that even today, God is working in someone's heart to say, oh my goodness, I need to embrace it. Because if Christ shows up, then truly conversion can take place. That is what Paul is saying. Now say, wait a second, stop. We're talking about division. 
Absolutely. That's why I want you to piece this all together. Because people who start fighting over the pastor or the messenger are missing the whole picture of how salvation as well as sanctification occur. Let us be people who understand these concepts deeply. And like I said, in a couple weeks, we'll get to verses 18 and 19 after our speakers over the next two weeks. And it's one of my favorite, favorite of all time. Make sure that you understand those concepts. And it starts with you making sure that you are born again. Let's pray. Father, how I thank you that you, you aren't dependent on me in the sense of, did I come up with the greatest intro today? Did I have the best story? Father, I know that there are many things I fail as a communicator, and there are many things I wish I could do better. I wish I always had this or that, and I can go through the list, but I ultimately just know, God, I want to teach the Word of God, and I want people to hear it, and I want your Spirit to show up and to convict people of sin, righteousness, and judgment on the salvation. Oh, God, how I just ask that somebody today would come forth and get saved if they've come here and they're not a believer in Jesus Christ. I would pray, God, that we all as a church understand our dependence upon you. As a pastor, I realize my weakness, and I hope that our church understands my weakness, all of our weakness, and it causes us to be praying for you to show up, God, to bring salvation. Please, God, We do want to see people saved. We do want to see people baptized. And if you'll show up, then we'll know what's happening. Please allow us to be a live church. I thank you for all that's going on in our church, God. But activity apart from true growth and repentance is dead. How I pray, God, that we, we who have so much life can see that multiplication going on. And I know too, God, that Spiritual life is shown by our unity. And I'm thankful for the unity we have here, which is evidence of so much. Thankful for that, God. Continue to allow us to be strong in that regard. So there's so much I want, God. And I want it because you're the God of all. I I think often, what do I want from you? I want everything. Because in myself, there's nothing. And I want it all for all the men and women here. I want them to regularly say, I want salvation for myself. I want it for my wife and my children. I want it for my loved ones. I want to see that spirituality, that growth. I pray, God, that we are people who don't settle. And because you've said that if we ask anything in your name, you hear us and we produce much fruit, help us, God, to learn how to pray better, to more effective, and to really just understand how to operate, not in some trickery, not in some cleverness, not in some ability to manufacture emotion so that we can have large hordes of people here. But God, help us to see you work through the power of the cross of Christ. In Jesus' precious name, amen.